0: Hi, I'm Calvin Pugh, and this is HIV Connect, a podcast from the International Association of Providers of AIDS Care, or IAPAC, that brings into focus what living with HIV looks like today. In each episode, I connect with clinicians, experts, and community leaders in conversations about clinical and psychosocial management issues, such as aging, stigma, and sexual health topics that matter to people living with HIV. Today's episode is all about long-term thriving and aging with HIV. My guests today are Dr. Jonathan Oppelbaum. He's an internist, geriatrician, and an HIV specialist. He's currently the Lori L. Doiser, Jr. MD, Education Director and Professor of Internal Medicine at Florida State University College of Medicine, where he also serves as the Chair of the Department of Clinical Sciences. He recently completed his term as the Chair of Board of Directors of the American Academy of HIV Medicine. He serves on the Board of Directors of Health HIV and has served as the co-director for the HIV and Aging Treatment Consensus Project of the American Academy of HIV Medicine and was the founding co-medical editor of HIVAge.org. Dr. Oppenbaum is the medical director at CarePoint Health and Wellness, serving the diverse and underserved populations of South Tallahassee. And prior to relocating to Florida, he held positions at Fenway Community Health and at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. And Tez Anderson, who's been living with HIV since 1983, he's a long-term survivor and he coined and defined the term AIDS survivor syndrome to describe the psychosocial ramifications of living in the aftermath of the early AIDS pandemic. He's the founder of Let's Kick Ass AIDS Survivor Syndrome, a nonprofit empowering HIV long-term survivors to thrive through connection re-engagement, and mobilization to create meaningful change to enhance quality of life. Tez currently serves as a U Equals U ambassador and has served in numerous capacities, including reporter for the Gay Cable News Network, AIDS United's HIV and Aging Policy Action Coalition, ANAC's HIV and Aging Expert Advisory Committee, Ribbon Organizing Center for HIV and Aging. Among his numerous accomplishments, one stands out in 2014. starting the Long-Term Survivors Awareness Day, which is recognized every June 5th. Thank you so much, both of you, for being here. So my first question for you is why is the topic of aging with HIV so important for us to discuss today?
1: I can start off with saying that You know, all you have to do is look at the demographics of HIV um, in the United States now. More than half of all persons living with HIV now are over the age of 50. And projections are at the end of this decade, which would be when the targets for end the epidemic will be there, that probably over half of the population living with HIV will be at the age of 60 or older.
2: I would add to that, yes, it's true that the majority of people with HIV in the U.S. and in most Western developed countries are over the age of 50. And in my experience, we're approaching 60 pretty fast. And it seems like I've been, let's kick ass, is 10 years old this year. And when I started doing this, there no one was talking about HIV and aging. So the reason it's important for us to discuss it is because Honest to God, we don't have the luxury of time. I hear about people every day that, almost every day, that have died of a heart attack or of a stroke or something that's, quote, not age-related, but it's related to the uh, uh, inflammation that they have in their bodies. And, and I think for long-term survivors especially, which is a distinction I want to make, uh, the, I believe to be this year is going to be 40 years uh, so the inflammation that affected my body back in the days so when there were no treatments or there were bad treatments has taken a toll on my body. So it's like dog years. If you're 64 or 63 a HIV, age of eight years, you're 75. It adds time to your age. You age faster.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of add on to that, and just say that uh, the issue as a geriatrician and HIV doc is that it seems that folks living with HIV actually seem to age a bit earlier. So you take HIV, you take aging, and you take the um, normal diseases that older people get, and you have a mixture we call multimorbidity that really impacts the approach to care and the kind of care that we as providers need to be giving to this population.
0: I think it's interesting that both of you touched on that. And maybe you can add some more light to this. So how does HIV affect us as we age? And, you know, for example, is it true that HIV accelerates the aging process?
1: I'll tell you that that, that's been controversial, but I think that the evidence, at least as I interpret it, is that uh, it seems to be more towards the fact that HIV tends to age people faster. And, uh, you know, as I alluded before, and I think as Tez has mentioned, is that It's the chronic inflammation that we see that probably is the culprit, although that's not 100% definite, Um, and that even people who are well-controlled with the newer medications and have an undetectable viral load, there is still ongoing inflammation going on. And we know from other chronic diseases um, where inflammation is ongoing despite control that those populations, and I'm talking about folks who don't have HIV, and may have other chronic inflammatory diseases, they tend to develop uh, complications of aging earlier, also.
2: There was a study released, and I think it was December or November that showed that people are aging, they say five years faster. The flaw in this study, if you ask me, was, was they just said people who have HIV positive for 10 years, they didn't just delineate between lengths of time of, of, of having HIV, living with HIV. And uh, that's, again, where long-term survivors become sort of a separate cohort in my mind. There's a lot of overlap, but the distinctions between living with HIV for, say, 30 or 40 years, as opposed to five years or six years or 10 years, is pretty substantial given how medications are much better now. I don't know that people who are long-term survivors, I think our aging path will be different than people who come after us. That's kind of why we're a dying breed. <laughs> uh, we're, the, we're the canaries in the coal mine. We're the first ones to get it, first ones to live with it longest. There will not be another generation like ours.
1: Yeah, and I agree. I think that you're talking about different populations because if you look at the long-term survivors, the people that developed HIV in the 80s and 90s before we had the current you know types of medications, they often um, had much far along the disease. They had higher viral loads, much lower CD4 counts, all of which we know wrecks havoc on the body. So I do think you're right. I think the cohort we're seeing now who you know, may have had HIV for 10 years may actually have a different longevity profile, longevity pathway than folks who are long-term survivors from the 80s and 90s.
2: And the number of people I know that are coming down with heart attacks lately is just astounding to me. And there are people who've had HIV for 25 and 35 and, like myself, 40 years. Uh, And I think that has to do with the fact that the toll that HIV took on our bodies before treatment and the inflammation from that was enormous and untreated, it really is wreaking a havoc on us.
0: So kind of in line with what you just said there, Tez, what is the effect of HIV on other age related conditions such as heart disease and osteoporosis?
2: I mean, almost everyone that I know and I deal mostly with, as I said before, long term survivors, whom I consider pre heart, who had access to no medications or bad medications, I think they're, they're having all those issues osteoarthritis, uh, high blood pressure, high, high everything. And we're seeing aging in that population, at least anecdotally. I don't have studies on this. It's one of the failures of our current situation is we don't have enough studies on the effects of HIV on long-term survivors. We have it on HIV and aging now in spades. That wasn't true 10 years ago. There was nothing. But <laughs> the world has caught up with us. I think, like John said before, it's about, you know, the numbers of people who are aging with HIV now. It's just you can't, you can't overlook us for that long. Well, I guess the
1: only other thing I would add is that if you look at a lot of the clinical trials that were done, particularly around pharmaceuticals, older persons with HIV were often excluded from those trials for reasons that I think were a little obscure um, and probably very short-sighted. Um, and now we're playing catch-up as population uses. It's almost like putting up uh, you know fire retardant material in the middle of a fire kind of thing. And so there's there's so much out there that we really don't yet know about, you know, what happens with someone who has been living with HIV for a while and the aging process. I
0: and mean, it seems like there's a lot that we still need to discover in this space and, you know, looking forward to what, you know, may come down the pipeline. But what can individuals do now to facilitate aging healthy with HIV, you know, things like smoking cessation, physical activity or mental health services.
1: So I I agree. I think lifestyle, you know, at any time, I mean, we counsel even our patients who have other diseases besides HIV, that it's never too late to, you know, embrace a healthy lifestyle. But certainly the earlier you do it, the better. Smoking in any context is really bad, but it's particularly bad with folks living with HIV. The data out there around smoking in persons who are living with HIV is just astounding as far as the increased risk and the number of life years lost just because they smoke. So for all of my patients, when I first meet them and and if they continue to smoke afterwards, I constantly talk to them about the importance if there's one thing that they can do to prolong their life, it's to, it's to try to stop smoking. That's one thing. I mean, obviously exercise, proper diet, rest, stress reduction, uh, mental health issues. Uh, hopefully we'll touch upon that during this podcast. I think are really, really important.
2: I mean, honestly, I can't really add to that too much, except for the fact that, you know, especially LGBT, maybe just gay man. I just leave it a gay man. Seems to smoke a lot. It seems to be part of our culture. There was a campaign in the 70s who did a thing called Project Scum that was targeting gay men in urban situations. I forget the acronym for scum, but it's something about urban smoking. And uh, that's been prevalent. I mean, Marble Man was invented to attract gay men to smoke. And it's become a sexy thing. And so there's a lot of people in the community that still smoke and if we could use them to stop that, that'd be a big deal. But as you said, rest, and especially sleep, getting enough sleep, getting into healthy foods, knowing what healthy foods are, not fad diets. Uh, all of those things are important. And I think the connections that we make are also important, the connecting with each other and feeling less alone because the stress of the mental health issues uh, has taken a toll on our bodies too, and they continue to. I read somewhere that isolation, is like smoking, I don't know, ten cigarettes, ten packs of cigarettes a day, or something ridiculous. A huge number of people have stress from being so isolated, to be so alone, and that takes a toll on your physical body too.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll add that the data on social isolation, which is fairly recent and ongoing, is also very provocative, and it really talks about the need that we as humans are social animals, and that loneliness is an additional stress on a body. And so if you have HIV and other you know, comorbidities and you add social isolation on top of that, that's detrimental.
0: I think it's interesting that you both have brought up isolation because, you know, isolation can really have poor mental health effects, especially those with mental illness, especially with everything that we've gone through the last couple of years where we've been forced to separate from our communities. So mental illness, especially depression and anxiety, is common among older adults living with HIV. So, Ted, I'll ask you first, how do you take care of your mental health?
2: Up and down, I suppose, is the best way to answer it. You asked before at one point about how I maintain a good attitude. My attitude's all over the fucking place. I mean, if I can say that word. Because lately, I've been going through a kind of a, a rough patch, but I'm smiling through it. I don't think we realize how many people are suffering in silence around isolation and those things. I don't think we understand because people can put on a good face a lot of the time. And until we start asking people, how are you doing? And not the usual, hey, how are you doing? Fine. But say, no, 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 no. I really want to know how you're doing. How is your life? Do you have friends? Can you do the work around your house you need to do? Can you cook for yourself? Do you need help with anything? Most people just want us to say fine and be done with it because it's a pleasantry. That's not good enough for older adults. You really want to delve deeper and have them know that you're listening to them.
0: And then, Dr. Albaum, in your clinician experience, those things like mental illness and depression, anxiety, how do you suggest, you know, people living with HIV who are aging and maybe isolated really care for their mental health?
1: That's a great question. And it's so variable from person to person. I think that social support is really important as we alluded to before. So I think that's the first thing. So, you know, having a peer group, uh, you know, whether it be their family of choice or, or friends or whatever is really important support groups still play a big role and obviously consulting uh, mental health professionals doesn't necessarily mean they need medication, but certainly a counselor or therapist would be the first step. But evaluating them, I mean, if they're they're at risk of self-harm, then that's a different degree of of concern that we would deal with immediately. Um, And then also recognize that folks may be reticent to reach out and may try self-medication. So we need to be aware of of substance use. Uh, A lot of people turn to substances in an attempt to self-medicate because of their depression and or anxiety.
0: Well, kind of keeping in that same vein, you know, Tez, you're an expert at AIDS survivor syndrome. I can imagine the toll it really takes on everyone's mental health who really went through those times. You know, as a young gay man, even prior to my own HIV diagnosis, I was told that all of my role models had died during the AIDS crisis. And you and I have got to spend some time together the last year, and that's just not true. You know, there are still people out there who live through those things, who are really great role models for the rest of us. How have you maintained such a healthy outlook with all the losses you've experienced?
2: I've done it through community, through connecting with people. You know, there's a meme that we lost an entire generation to AIDS. It's one of my least favorite memes because while we lost a lot of the generation, I'm one of the generation that's still here. And what happens when we have memes like that is that they just discount the whole population that came before. And that feels really hard. to It's a hard pill to swallow given the loss and the tragedy of AIDS. I mean, HIV in the early days was like a combination of both amazing connections and fighting for the same cause and I like a purpose and meaning. And then, uh, and then the heart drugs came along and suddenly it was a chronic manageable illness. And I say I put that in the air quotes because it may be chronic, but it's not easily managed. And I think that it's like when you find other people and you realize that you're not alone. I mean, our first town hall with Let's kick ass, was 10 years ago and we had it held at the San Francisco LGBT Center. And I thought, if we get 40 people, I'll be very happy. And 225 showed up. And it showed me that there were lots of people who had dropped off the radar, just kind of disappeared from the culture because, one, of ageism, but, two, because they had lost so many friends that making new friends was, seemed impossible, seemed like, why bother? Because I will just die anyway. Um, so I think letting people know that they're not alone. And I get a lot of emails from people who say, thank you for bringing this up. Because I coined AIDS survivor syndrome, as you know. And I don't love it when people just leave it at PTSD. Because first of all, PTSD is mis- mislabeled, in my opinion. It's STI, post-traumatic stress injury. Because it really is a wound. And it's normal. It's a normal part of having that much loss at such a young age. So the reasons for us not making friendships is very complicated. But I think the harder we try to do that, the better we do it, the better off we feel it, physically and mentally. But it's, it's really a tough one because the researchers who do this stuff as profession have sort of said, oh, AIDS survivor syndrome is not a real thing. And, yeah, you know, I get emails from people all the time saying, thank you. I did not know there was a name for it or that other people were going through it. And I, I call it AIDS survivor syndrome as a term of empowerment, as much as anything to honor the experience that we had going through the early epidemic, which is unique to our population.
0: Dr. Applebaum, if there's someone listening or watching this that maybe went through similar experiences to what Tez has, has gone through, is there advice you'd give them as a clinician? Yeah,
1: I think I would agree with what Tez was alluding to, which is reach out to other folks who are similar to them. Some of that may be difficult, you know, if you're living in a rural area where there may not be much support, but there are certainly online presence of groups reaching out to Tez and his group. But I think that sense of community is really important and to realize that there's other people like you that have gone through or going through what you're going through, I think will, will help ease some of the stress and burden.
2: I also think that telling people it's a perfectly normal response to a traumatic event is very helpful, too, because I think people feel like there's something wrong with me because I'm having these feelings. And honest to God, it's just a natural response to a very unnatural experience. And for me, EMDR is a kind of mental health therapy that helped me enormously. It's a form of therapy that's very effective in the short term. I did five sessions of it and felt like a different person. So I think seeking professional help is good, but sometimes, at least in my situation, I had explained to the nice therapist who was crying on my shoulder, I was explaining to him something about my life, and I said, honey, this is not how this works. You're supposed to be comforting me. I'm not supposed to be comforting you. But I realized in that moment that I knew more about the early days of the epidemic. They were treating me for depression and anxiety and sleep disorder and anger and, and all these things I was having, hopelessness and suicidal ideation, um, it was an ugly five-year period. They were treating me for the individual things without understanding what the overarching thing was behind it. And I think that's important is to look at the, you know, what what causes what.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, with everything that we've all experienced as a whole planet, the isolation, the constant traumas that we've all been induced to by the media and everything else that's happened around the world, that asset of, of support systems and mental health professionals is pretty vital. I think, you know, that's one of those things that folks, you know, they know what they, you know, their own experience better than someone else is going to, but seeking mental health services has been vital for me to move on past some of the things that we've experienced the last couple of years.
2: I think all clinicians need to be trained in trauma-informed care because I don't think anybody doesn't go through life without trauma. It tells you, you actually took the words right out of my mouth. That was what I was going <laughs> to That and then also Good.
1: realizing that not all therapists know this and also not all therapists know about AIDS survivor uh, syndrome either. So, no, you know, I always tell people that just like with friends and stuff, they may not click, you know, with them. So you may not click with your first therapist, but... I would, I would keep searching and not say, hey, therapy isn't working because of one session or a couple of sessions with one therapist. Maybe find a different therapist who is more in tune to you than the, than the one that you're dealing with now. Because I think mental health services will help.
2: I think if we could just teach people how to empower themselves and speak up and say to them, yeah, this is not working for me, and here's why. Is useful not only for the clinician who's treating you, but it's useful for you to feel like you have some involvement in your own care.
0: I think that's kind of been a running theme throughout my years in the HIV space. Something I taught the folks that I worked with, the clients that I worked with, was that you're the CEO. And I think that that really applies to all of your care. You know, if your clinician isn't listening to you, or your nurse practitioner, or whoever isn't listening to you, Especially when you're talking about something, you know, as delicate as aging with HIV, because you're talking about polypharmacy and you're talking about the balance of having all of your clinicians all on one page. And I think that's one thing I've tried to really impart to people is that you are the CEO of your care, mental health, clinical health, whatever. And, you know, you should hire and fire accordingly. Yes.
1: Yes. Good, and that's something we teach our medical students is patient-centered care. The patient is the center of the care, not the doctor, not the hospital, not the healthcare system, but the patient.
2: I just wish more of them would listen. Because, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I have fired doctors. I fired a very famous guy, he's doctor in San Francisco years ago, decades ago, because all he did was complain about how he wasn't making any money. And I was like, you know, I don't really care if you're not making money I was so bitter about it all. I just said, this is not working for me. I'm going to have to change positions. Don't be afraid to fire your doctor. And I think we
0: have to remember that the privilege of a lot of us in city centers is that we have those options. And, you know, those folks in rural areas maybe don't have all those choices. But hopefully we get to a place someday that that is an option for everybody to be more in charge of the way that their care is managed. Something I'd like to ask you, Dr. Applebaum, which is... As a clinician, when you're aging with HIV, how complex and how important is the issue of polypharmacy? It's
1: huge. You know, the data from the group in San Francisco, which has um, done a phenomenal job, is that at least in their cohort, the average person was taking 12 uh, medications. That included their antiretroviral therapy. So if you assume that they're on three antiretroviral drugs, then that You subtract that from 12, you get nine. It means they are on nine other medications. So as a clinician and as a geriatrician, it's one of the first things I look at is, you know, do you need to be on all these drugs? Is there a diagnosis that supports the use of a certain medication? And if not, then the question is, why are you taking it? Do you really need it? So it's something I think more and more primary care docs are attuned to. It's something we're teaching now, uh, rather than prescribing, we're teaching deprescribing, And it has to be done carefully. It's not just, you know, you cross off a medication and, and delete it. There has to be a reason, and, and it has to be carefully thought out. But I think polypharmacy is is a huge issue in our population of older persons living with HIV.
0: Tez, how is then the uh, balance of managing medications as you've aged?
2: It's tricky. I mean, I recently changed HIV regimes for the first time in about 15 years. I'm mostly drug resistant, so I have a very few options. My physician is pretty good about this because I went in one day and said, you know, I take a lot of pills. He said, let's see what we can get rid of. So I was still on prophylaxis for PCP. And even though I had PCP back in 93 or 94, I didn't really need to be on it, my T-cells are still low. But mind you, I lived for seven years with 13 T-cells. So I stopped living my life on the countdown clock. used to be, how many T-cells do you have? And the lower your T-cells got, the sooner you're gonna die. In my experience, that's not true. (laughs) I've lived with below 300 T-cells for 25 years. My CD8s are high percentages. But those are, that's I in the weeds a bit for people to understand. But I do think it's important that we understand it. But getting rid of those medications that you don't really have to take, mind you, it's important enough to take statin probably and probably something for your heart issues if you're aging with it because it's big, heart disease is a big killer right now. So I've gotten it down some. I can take everything now at bedtime instead of taking one in the morning and two at night or something like that. So that's helpful. It's really about quality of life. All the stuff that I'm talking about is really about how do we improve the quality of life? Because for myself, if I'm hooked up on machines and don't know who my husband is or my dog, I don't want to live that way because that's not a good quality of life. And that's the thing that I fight hardest for is improving our quality of life. And then say, how many of these medications are really improving our quality of life.
0: So, Dr. Appoboam, something I'd like to ask you is, considering everything you've experienced over the years as a clinician, what's a piece of advice you'd give young advocates or or people who are younger and, you know, they're going to age with HIV? What is something that they should know?
1: Well, you know, I, we kind of touched on something called ageism. And so I would encourage the younger folks to understand that they too will age. <laughs> it 's inevitable, and learn from us the healthy lifestyle thing, as I mentioned right at the very beginning it's never too late to change your unhealthy habits, but it's sure a heck of a lot better if you do it earlier and it doesn't mean everyone has to you know go to the gym you know for five hours, five days a week, but you know moderate exercise, as we talked about, sleep, eating healthy, you know avoiding toxic substances, reducing stress, all of those things are important much. Better to start when you're younger.
2: Great, and avoiding toxic people.
0: Oh, I'd like a pill for that. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't we how about you, Tess? All the stuff you've experienced over the years. What's what's a piece of advice you'd give young advocates?
2: You, you know, my advice to the advocates are: check in with yourself and make sure you're doing what fulfills you. Because I think sometimes we all—I do it myself—slip into a groove step into a mode where you're just like, oh, this is what I've been doing, I just keep doing it. But sometimes I have to stop and ask myself, am I really enjoying this or am I just doing it because it's what I know how to do? So I think having those challenges of reassessing your life and your situation, and I'm not kidding about the toxic friendships, people who are in your life that, are, that do not support you, that do not understand you, and if you explain them what's going on with you and they still don't understand you, they're not worth having in your life. I'd rather be alone than have people who don't understand the reason I'm such a bitch some days. I mean honestly, my best friends put up with my crap and and I put up with theirs and I love them anyway and love them despite that. I can't underestimate how important quality friendships are. Make them young and make them as soon as you can because it gets harder as you get older to make friends. I mean you're just more naturally isolated, physically compromised. So honestly, it's about doing what feeds your soul. I'm not a big soul person, but in this case, what makes you want to get up in the morning and be excited about what you do? I think that's so
0: important and such a good note to end on. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Jonathan Applebaum and Tess Anderson for their insights and expertise on this important conversation. As we in the field of HIV look forward into the future, we really have to be mindful and remember those who came before us, and the things that are a part of our history that really have shaped where we are today. And we really have to look to solutions to meet the unique needs and really enhance the quality of life of long-term survivors and those aging with HIV. Thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you.
0: To learn more about today's topics and other subjects, please visit AIDS InfoNet at www.iapac.org or click the link in the show notes. As Senior Advisor on Community Engagement at IAPAC, I want to hear from you. You can email me at kpugh at iapac.org. You can also find out more about today's guests in our show notes. Until next time, Please be kind and take care of yourself and each other.